She's All That. This is the She's All That video podcast, conversations with women doing awesome shit. I'm your host, September Smith. And in this season, it's all about the transformation that women are making in the aftermath of the midlife bomb, as I call it. Those unforeseen events, illness, loss, a career termination, a battle, an awakening, a transformation. Events that are lobbed into our lives like a grenade, detonating the life that we've been living for decades and making it impossible to ever go back. When this happens, we are left to dust ourselves off, figure it out and find our own way forward. While the lens of popular culture is often on the tragedy and the trauma and the injury and damage that it inflicts, I want to celebrate women who were only made stronger by what they experienced. We need to hear those stories to know that building that new life, that new incarnation from the pieces of what was is not just possible, it may be the best thing you'll ever do. She's all that. Welcome to the She's All That video podcast. I'm your host, September Smith, and today I'm talking to Rona Malone. Until April of 2020, Rona Malone was a member of the Police Service of Scotland, and she had risen to the position of firearms officer. Last year, she left her position and her hard-won career after an almost three-year legal battle with the force in which she was victorious. Rona's fight was in response to repeated discrimination and a culture of institutionalized sexism at the Police Scotland Firearms Unit, where women are set up to fail, particularly if they question how things work. Rona, welcome and thank you so much for being here today to talk about this. Thank you, September. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I am so thrilled to talk to you. Um, It was actually in a LinkedIn discussion thread about the topic of non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, that I first discovered you. It was um, a conversation that was precipitated by one woman's post about how an NDA had totally impacted her life, her career, her mental health, her financial health, et cetera, and how she felt so alone and you and me and dozens and dozens of other women piled in with a me too comment. Yeah. And your story particularly stood out for me. So give me a little bit of background about what your situation was. You were working with police Scotland. Yeah. And you were a firearms officer. Now that's, that's something that that's above a regular police officer. You'd worked really hard to become a, firearms officer. What is that? And what was happening? What was that pivot point that caused you to go on this path of fighting? So I am, um, I was a police officer for nearly seven years, no, nearly eight years when I joined firearms. Um, I think I took it on as a, another challenge. It was something, you know, there weren't many women in that area of work. Um, it was definitely sold to me, you know, as in um, we need to get more women into the division. Is this something that would be of interest to you? And for me, um, I mean, I was very committed police officer. I loved what I did. I had an absolutely great career. And um, yeah, I thought this is a great challenge. I liked to um, change people's perspectives. And I thought, yeah, I can do this. So I joined, it was a 10-week intensive course, and there's a high failure rate of um, police officers going through the course, quite rightly so. You have to have um, a good mindset um, and know what you're doing. The what risk- exactly is that firearms officer designation? What 
What do they do? So, well, in, um, I, I know some people will be aware, but in Britain, we don't have the right to carry firearms. Um, you have to have a license to have a firearm, um, either personally or even in a working environment like the police. The police is the only place where you would get that. That's fabulous. Sort of- that's great. I mean, it is. It's a huge. It's a huge. I totally respected the the fact that I um, got the opportunity to do that because it was a a, a huge um, responsibility. Um, so, as a firearms officer, <clears throat> um, I'd say you know you're just a normal police officer. You are still a police officer. You've just got this extra PPE. So you've this protection equipment. You've that that is the only difference, and you've got extra training. You know, um, you're put into situations which are just basically life and death situations. So you wouldn't normally go to a pub brawl, for example, or go along to a domestic abuse situation unless there was a threat to life, unless somebody was threatening somebody else's life or they were threatening to harm themselves. So it was very um, limited jobs that we went to, you know, um, because they wanted to not only protect um, the public but ourselves. So, yeah. So I, I joined in um, 2016. It was a great, phenomenal opportunity. And um, I, I went to Edinburgh. So I was in the capital of Scotland. I was working from there. And um, it was just amazing. It was great. I, it was a great opportunity to be able to fire a gun. I'll, I'll not lie. You know, the training was amazing. It was really good. But the responsibility that came with it, again, was crucial. Was was very. I took that very seriously. So um, I started to notice, though, that this division was very unique. So as I said before, we're all the same. We're all police officers. We've just got this extra PPE. We've just got this extra equipment. But this department or division that I was working in was very unique in that it it was very male-dominated and it was micromanaged. So certainly in the training, you've got to make split-second decisions. So there's a potential that I could shoot somebody. So for me, you have to have a look, you have to use your own instincts. You have to be able to risk assess immediately yourself. And you know, not have to, you never had somebody over your back telling you what you could or couldn't do. So when I moved to this division, the management was very oppressive, very um micromanaged, and I was basically I found it a huge conflict. Huge conflict because I thought, here I am taking the responsibility of potentially shooting somebody and I'm in an environment where I'm being restricted and obstructed and limited and that it didn't work well and I didn't, it wasn't a nice, nice place to be. Now, Certainly, question, question, was, yeah. the, was this uh, the micromanaging and, and, and feeling oppressive oversight, was, was that something that all officers in the firearms division had to deal with? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't it was initially it wasn't a gender thing. No, this was um, the whole division across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And um, nobody challenged it. Nobody really because what their um, response was: if you challenge management, you're basically out of the job. You don't want to create a target on your back. Mm-hmm. So um, there's only so long that you that I put up with that though, because at the end of the day, it's me that's carrying the gun. It's me that's going to end up potentially shooting somebody, and um, it's me that'll take that'll have the responsibility whether that goes to jail, goes to court, you know what have you. So that was always at the back of my mind. But 
I just put the longer I was there, the more and more I was there, the more I picked up on this negativity, this oppression, this it was a dark depression. But it wasn't from the people I worked with. It was management. It was was from them. So I started to highlight my concerns. And it was to do more with the directions that I was given, the orders that I was given. I questioned everything. Again, it's me that would be responsible at the end of the day if I shot somebody. So I needed to make sure that I, what I was being informed, how what was happening, there was justification for everything. And the justification never came. So when I was questioning things, when I was asking, it didn't come, which started to make me feel quite uneasy. But the, the pivot point for you was it, having looked at the BBC reporting on your case, the pivot point was an email. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. So basically, I had, because I'd challenged or questioned a few of the orders that had been given and directions, um, I was also experiencing um, really horrendous treatment from my senior management. So I had dealt with three major incidents before that email. There was many others, but there was like three major. And that was directly related, I believe, to my gender. One of them was an overtime claim that I didn't um, get whereas a male officer did. We were in the same circumstances. Um, the other one was I had a claimed, I tried to get like flexible working or condensed working hours, so it fitted with my family. And um, again, management made it extremely difficult and went out their way to basically obstruct me to be able to do my job at the same time as work well with my family. So it, by their reckoning, you can't be protecting the public. You can't be an officer uh, holding the responsibility of a firearms officer and still have the flexibility in the, to, to be a part of your family? No, it wasn't that. It was more um, they didn't want to help. They wanted to, they made it as awkward as possible. They didn't, um, the rules and regulations in Police Scotland are that you know, officers that apply for flexible working or condensed working hours, it, it should be ap applied in every instance unless there's a justifiable reason why not. Oh, so and there they, was actually precedent for this, people There was a precedent, yeah, absolutely. But what I established, and I'll come into that later with court cases, they used and abused the processes and procedures, they misled, they, they, they didn't follow them. So... They, tried, they made it as awkward as possible and they couldn't justify it, but they delayed it. And when they were delaying my overtime or my condensed working hours application form, it just had a huge impact um, on my family. I wasn't seeing them. You know, the, the shifts were horrendous in that division. And I was just looking to be able to look after my family at the same time as do my job. But they just weren't willing to be flexible with me at all. And they made it really difficult. And then there was a third incident before that email, and that was in the December. And I was basically accused. So because I was highlighting these things, I was upsetting management. But I also got accused of throwing my belt with a loaded weapon. And it never happened. Throwing. It was just, just So my utility belt with a Glock, and my Glock 17, they accused me of throwing that onto, throwing the, onto the floor, out of um, like a tantrum, like I was having a tantrum. What? So... And I'll, I'll just confirm that that never happened at any time. And when it was investigated later on, that, that senior officer, basically, um, he 
Um, what was the, the word they used? Sorry, it's just lost my mind there. It was misunderstood the situation or it was a misunderstanding. It was a misunderstanding so, when I accused you of doing something totally yeah. irresponsible in your position as a firearms officer. Yeah. Totally against happen. any of the training or. No. So I, so there was a few situations that led up to that was happening a, up to a year before I got this email. So this email that you're discussing was I received in January of 2018. And this was basically the pivot, the, the, the final, the cherry on top, the, I just had straw, enough. The straw that broke the game. Yeah. And basically the email was absolutely 100% discriminatory. And it was my senior officer, basically. I had worked with a female officer and we had had a great shift. We'd had some great results. And, you know, there aren't any, there was just myself and this other female officer. There aren't any females in firearms. So, you know, the fact that we got to work together was, you know, we were like, this is brilliant. This is really good. And and we could show them how well we did because there is, there's a pressure on you as a woman that you have to prove yourself wrongly or rightly that that, that feeling was there all the time. And we worked so well in the shift, got great results. And I came into an email basically saying, um, I don't want to see two female officers working together um, due to their physical capabilities and to balance out testosterone. And then the email they was actually on actually mentioned to balance out testosterone, like testosterone is a necessary element yeah. of being a police officer? It's like I needed a male, a male to hold my hand to do the job. Um, it was awful. It was just, at first I thought it was just a, a, an absolute joke. Now, was this an email that went out just to you or was this was four department people. wide? So the person that sent it, my line manager, who it was sent to, myself and this other female officer. So we, we saw that as a direct instruction. Yeah, and it was awful. It was just absolutely disgusting and totally discriminatory. And he starts off the email saying, I'm going to jump in with two feet and be accused of, oh, I can't remember it now. It, I think I have the quote there. Um, You've got the quote. Sexual discrimination. I'm going to yeah, I'm going in. to be accused of um, discrimin discrimination. And I thought, yeah, you're absolutely right because you have been. And like, it was like, like somehow but, it's okay because it's like, like it's let's okay, let's it's break fine. through the political correctness here. Yeah, yeah. Let's just um, use my rank and authority and misuse it, and um, wow. and that that's wrong. That is wrong on so many levels. And that really affected me really badly because I think that's when I had the light bulb moment and I thought this whole division is just um suffers from misogyny. You know, they they it was a very archaic, male-dominated environment. The canteen culture, the banter, you know, the the words and the phrases and things that people use were never challenged, they were nurtured, and it was actually the longer it went on, it was very um, derogatory towards women and totally affected us, you know, in yeah. a job, you know, because we weren't seen, we weren't seen as, as equals. Yeah, not, not real members. Yeah. And we're now seeing, particularly since the summer of 2020, uh, with all the you know, problems in, in, in the States, we're seeing that policing, toxic masculine policing, is not actually an effective answer to to any kind of you know if you're a peace officer if you're there to to improve 
not be a, like a fascist lockdown sort of force to be there to police society in a way that's that's yeah. effective you need a more diverse input and approach so like as you say Absolutely. you and this other female officer working together you were creating this whole other dynamic that you should have been actually whole, looking at it should have been nurtured it should have been celebrated it should have for all the things that we did there was no violence involved there was no um egos or machoism you know we were significant we were very um strong women very confident in what we were in our abilities and mediation negotiation it goes a long way. It's not you don't need brute strength, especially as a police yeah. officer. That's especially the, when that's you're a least. firearms officer. I'm a firearms. I don't need the strength anyway because I've got yeah. weapons. But at the same time, you don't need strength. I don't think strength should be the top, um, and I don't think it is. You know, it's not the the top skill of being a police officer. It's it's how you use your communication, yeah. how you listen, how your awareness, emotional you know, intelligence. And, emotional intelligence and um as i said i was i was really good at what i did really good at what i did and he just totally belittled it and then tried to use his power and authority and his rank to suppress me to quiet me to silence me and they've been trying to do that all year so to do with the overtime claim to do with the flexible working and and the being accused of the 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 firearms throwing the firearms you know that was to, to put fear and threaten me and to scare me into backing off. And yeah, undermine your legitimacy uh, as, totally as a responsible. Me. But the officer. bigger picture is they saw me as a female. That was it. It was all to do with my gender. They wouldn't have treated a, a man like that. No, they wouldn't have no. treated a, a, the same male colleague in, in that situation like that. Not at all. It's because they, they could turn around and say, I was neurotic, I was a drama queen, that um, I was taking a hissy fit. You know, they used all these words and these phrases to describe um, my reaction to what they were doing to me. And, and all I was doing was being defensive, and was, yet, was standing up for what I believed in, what was and right. And you had, you had gone through the first uh, series of police officer training. You would Absolutely. become, with flying colors, you were an upstanding member of the police force. And yeah. then after this other training, which, as you said, there's a very high failure rate of. So you had met all their criteria psychologically as, as a person. And now suddenly, yeah, they got, have to paint you as a, like a, a drama queen, as you say. Yeah. This nearly three-year battle that, that you entered into. Yeah. Prior to that, that, you know, light bulb moment. Was that something that you kind of envisioned did you see that coming were, and were you oh, ready no. for that I, I didn't because when I was introduced to that job role to that um to being a firearms officer it was very much we'll look after you we'll protect you um, we know you're the minority we are trying to change we're trying to get more women into the firearms division and I loved I loved that being part of change and I thought yeah this is good they've got my back They've absolutely got my back and they're going to support me, you know, because I, I knew going into policing as a male-dominated environment anyway, but firearms is a whole other a whole other um, level. And so, you know, there was a bit of anxiety of being around, you know, people that had been in the army, you know, they'd been in this division a long time. You, you Normally, you didn't get into firearms unless somebody left and that was through retirement. 
you know, the, the division was very cliquey, it was very, um, once you're in, you don't really leave. So you don't have people coming and going that have got a diverse background, that have seen a lot of change and development and progress over the years. You know, they, they're very um, insulated, this division was. So they put themselves out as being ready for change and they being did. supportive. They, yeah. So Absolutely. they had the sound bites in place. Yeah, but I was just a facade. It was just absolutely It was empty words. There was no depth to it. They actually didn't know what to do, and they weren't doing it. And unfortunately, by the time I realised that, I got the email. I mean, literally, I'd been in the division for a year, got the email, and when I asked for help, it just never came. It got worse. It just got worse and worse and worse. So, yeah, when I got that email, I basically challenged it straight away and I challenged them and I approached them and I said to the person that sent it, you know, this is outrageous. This is absolutely disgusting. And they wouldn't back down. So the two senior officers, the one that sent it and the one that was in support of them, basically wouldn't back down. And eventually, because the conversation, because I was challenging them on what they were saying and he wasn't backing down, they tried to threaten me by taking my firearms license off me. So it was, um, so basically I was told by one of the other officers is you're getting very um, emotional and angry. We're going to have to consider taking your firearms license off you. And I thought, um, no, no, th th you're actually threatening me. Yeah. So it was like, are we going to have to take your guns off your owner? And I'm like, so see, when he said that, I just silenced. I just backed off. I totally mm -hmm. felt threatened there and mm -hmm. then. And I thought, fine, I have to take this higher. Unfortunately, and this is the reason it went to legal action, was when I raised this as a formal grievance, a formal complaint, they basically came after me. So they did take my firearms so who, license. Who was getting me. emotional? Yeah. Who was overreacting? Yeah, absolutely. So I basically had my firearms license taken off me. I was taken out of the team. So I was isolated from the people that were my support network who were very supportive of me at that time. Um, I was put to a different station. I'd agreed to do some sort of mediation to, to help resolve the problem because at the end of the day, I just wanted to do my job. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I raised it as a grievance was because, one, I was getting attacked, you know, by these false allegations of misconduct, throwing my gun with a with a load, you know, throwing my belt with a loaded weapon, getting an email saying that I can't work with other women. And and I thought they're, they're gonna end up accusing me of something that I can't protect myself or evidence against. And this isn't the police. Yeah. I mean, see if we just stop for a minute and think about that for a moment. The police are there to uphold the law. And the very people, the very what I was doing for other people, I wasn't getting in the police. So I was getting attacked by my senior management, by senior officers who were absolutely using their, their, their rank and authority against me at every opportunity to silence me. And I just wasn't remaining quiet. And they didn't know how to handle that. They didn't know how to deal with it. So that's how they make it out. Oh, you're being a woman. You're being neurotic. You're being, you know, again, these same words kept coming up. And um, but the my male counterparts were not getting treated the same. Yeah. So I'm accusing a senior officer of misconduct at this point for discrimination, bullying, victimization. His guns never got taken off him. The question never even came up about taking his authorization away. And yet mine got taken away because I went off for a couple of weeks because I was ill. 
you know, because it, it, it affected my stomach, the stress, but it was something that I could manage. It wasn't mental at that point. It was just, I was, I was, I was tired of fighting. So I just needed a couple of weeks off or fight. I was tired of having to defend myself and try to find help and support that just wasn't coming. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, again, the other thing that they did was they promoted these people in the background. So well, the, the very people on, that were the doing very people this, that attacked me. Yeah. The two senior officers, the one that accused me of throwing a belt, that it was a misunderstanding, and the one that um, sent the email, discriminatory email, both were promoted. So wow. meanwhile, and you know, so how how's, how is anybody going to react to that? Yeah. You know, so see to the whole of Police Scotland, because everybody knew about that email. That email went far and wide within Police Scotland. Everybody so they're rewarded it. and you're they are having the pressure put on. And I'm kicked out, basically. So I've had my guns taken off me. I'm out of the department. Um, and my That's a message. It was a huge message. Huge message. And I was trying to tell senior management this, and they just weren't listening. But it's because they didn't want to. They were trying mm-hmm. to suppress it. We've since found out, and we've got the evidence after my court judgment, that basically they went out their way to suppress it and quieten, quieten it. So mm-hmm. it was a horrendous time. I mean, really, from the email until I took legal action, so January until the July, I ended up taking legal action because I was just getting nowhere with Police Scotland. They weren't taking responsibility. Now, when... Early on in the three-year struggle, they offered to pay you out with an NDA. Yeah. Uh, a legal document to stop you from speaking about what happened. And also, it wasn't just to stop you from speaking about what happened. It was just also stop you from assisting any colleagues with similar situations. That would have been an easy way out. It, it's an easy way out. It would have saved you all those years and then the, the trauma and, and the effect it's had on your health and well-being. Why did you decide to not take the NDA and to go forward? So I still had, you don't know at that point where it's going to go. You know, mm-hmm. I had no idea it would have been dragged out for so many years. I had no idea what was ahead of me. But at the time, I was a police officer and I was so passionate about calling out what they did because, one, it was my reputation. Mm-hmm. I had a wonderful I loved being in the police. I miss not being a police officer. It, every day, every day I have to deal with that grief because they took away something that was my life, that was my passion. And then, But for me, I spent majority of my time as a police officer seeking justice for other people. So why can't I get justice? Why can't I get acknowledgement and get accountability for something that was clearly wrong? And when they offered me a payout and this non-disclosure agreement, I was um, I was insulted. I was absolutely insulted and I said, no, this is wrong. This is wrong on so many levels because nobody's going to know what you've done to me. And right now you've got two officers that have been promoted they look like they've done nothing wrong. And meanwhile, I have my reputation's been ruined. I'm not in the division anymore. And my mental health at that time had broken down. I'd had a mental breakdown in the June of 2018. So I was extremely vulnerable and ill when they offered that to me. And 
my finances were really impacted as well. I had the whole worry of what am I going to do if I end up losing my job here? Because I knew, I think, at the time that they offered me the first um, payment, an NDA, we had been at legal action for at least five months and I was tired. I was physically, mentally exhausted. My mental health was still dramatically impacted. And even the thought of being around police officers made me ill. I was ill around police officers. I couldn't go into police stations. I couldn't look at police cars. Anything that reminded me of the police affected me so badly. It meant I didn't leave the house for a long, long time. So when they offered me that, and the other thing, sorry, was when this all started, when this all happened, I couldn't find any other women to ask for support. So I was getting I wonder no help. why. Because how many other NGAs had taken that possibility out of the game? So I could not find MD to help to support me, who I could talk to. I mean, if you're an alcoholic, if you've got a drug addiction, you have groups, you have support networks, you can go and speak to people. And I had nobody. I was on my own. I was isolated. By this time, the people, the very people who I thought were family had basically just abandoned me. So I was literally on my own. And then when I got offered this, I had no idea where it came from. I have no idea why, where the strength came from, but I just said, no, it's wrong. It's wrong for you to do that. And I'm not going to sign that. And the other thing was, there was a, an extra clause that they tried to put in that would have prevented me being a witness for any other police officer who was taking police Scotland to court. And I think that later turned out that it would have been illegal anyway. They couldn't have done it. But that try, just shows you the you length it. they tried. And it shows you the length that they went to. to and also, to silence. it shows you that there was some understanding that perhaps this sort of case might arise again. If they had the forethought to think then, oh, oh, and you can't be wit- standing as a witness for anyone else. Uh, that's because you know that there are other cases. So, yeah, that, and, and there are. There are many. I mean, I have been approached by many women since I went public um, in 20. I think it was 2020 I went public after I left the police. I couldn't do it before because I was a police officer, which is another, you know, another obstruction and limitation because when I went public, the amount of women that came forward was phenomenal. These are women that had left the police that didn't take any action or were taking action and um, you know they they reached out and said you're not alone, and that 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 was so mm. powerful for me that I'd been so alone for such a long time. It really it really helped. And you know what? But, you're like a lightning rod for them because no doubt they were alone and felt alone. And that yeah, one voice, that one woman anybody. who didn't take that NDA and yeah. fought and sacrificed. Uh, speaking yeah. of sacrifice, uh, a question that. I'd love to ask is I ask most of my guests in, in the, around this topic of what did you lose and what did you gain? Well, we've, we've talked about some of the, what you lost, but it also impacted your, your health and there yeah. are ongoing effects to that. I, I understand how that can happen. Uh, how, how did it affect you? So every day I have to manage my mental health basically. So I have, um, I've been to a lot of treatment over the years and I've spoke to some wonderful people that have helped me. And, do you know, I never experienced mental health before this. Never had it. Never had it. And it's like joining the police that I say to people. It's like there's things that you will see and do and you will never be able to unsee or undo them. You will always 
that will always be etched in your mind at some point. And it's like, um, that's how I see, that's how mental health is. I can't unsee this now. I can't unfeel this. I can't unbe this. It is part of me. And that's not okay. That is not okay that I was led, that that resulted in that happening because it was totally unnecessary. If the police, if the organisation that I loved and believed in and held in high regard had basically done what they said they do, which is they look after their police officers, their well-being is priority. We will support you. We will not. If they had done that, I would not be here today because there would have been, I would have been in a safe environment. That was not a safe environment, but I didn't know it. I didn't know it. So it was hidden from me, that, that charade, that facade of, you know. So, yeah, I lost my mental health. And it's something I have to deal with every day now. And I'll never forgive them for that. And financially, it, it really financially took me to the world. Horrendous. So this court case, I didn't get support from the Federation. I didn't get support from the police. What I got was ignored, obstructed, misled, limited um, information. And um, I ended up paying for my own legal support. So my own legal team, I spent in excess of £70,000 to get my case to court. Now, the social injustice element of my case is also something that needs highlighted. So you've got your non-disclosure agreements and the social injustice. If you, I was up against the public purse. The police were using the public purse against me yeah. and nobody was regulating it. Nobody was overlooking it or you know, holding them to account. Kind of way the whole NDA thing works. They let you know, we've got deeper pockets than you do. You've got yeah. your own resources. We've got the, all the finances necessary. We can wait you out. So, but, uh, I mean, that, that is... David and Goliath. It is. It absolutely is. But I have um, genuinely, my, I, I cannot thank my family enough, but without them, I would never have got justice because they have basically supported me and they have paid for my legal bills as well. So they don't only, at the age of 45, I've got my mum and dad still paying for me, looking after me, they're also paying my legal bills. And, you know, I was offered a second amount of money and another NDA just before the court case because I was literally on my knees and I, and I was so, I nearly took it. They I nearly had you it. where they wanted you. They had me where they wanted me. So they had, for them, Three years it took to get to court. They had basically financially crippled me, affected my mental health, and kept me in limbo. That was the other thing. I was in limbo for a long time. I couldn't work because I was so ill, and I couldn't go back to the police because it caused so much mental health issues. And at the end of the day, I just wanted it to end. I just wanted it to finish and end. And I was mentally exhausted. And not just end as in finish the court yeah. case, but there was a point when my mental health was so bad that I was ready to end my life. Now, I know I was so unwell at that time, but there's nothing that could have... Um, the only thing that would have... It was such a dark time. I actually don't want to talk about that again because okay. it, it brings back memories that I don't want to think about. Yep, I respect that. But they created it. They created that situation and there was no need for it. But I nearly took that NDA. I nearly took that second amount of money. 
And then my partner's family came along and said, we'll give you the 20,000 that you need to take this to court. Wow. So wow. if they didn't give me, now it's not a small amount of money, 20,000 mm-hmm. pounds, I don't know what that works out in, in dollars, but it's a phenomenal amount of money when you don't have any. And I don't have any. I'm ready to sell my house. Yeah. You know, I've got three children. They're older, but they still take, you know, I'm, I, I can't physically and or financially help them. They were being mum and dad to me. They were looking after me. So I had my mum and dad looking after me. I had my children looking after me. It's not a situation that anybody should be in. No, and you were a former, upstanding, totally capable police officer and reduced to, to that. It totally and, broke me. And now you, you've gone on and you've got two new paths that you've taken. You've got your new career but you're also doing speaking around this very issue, which I think is such a valuable thing. Yeah. It's a story that the world needs to hear. Um, before we get into your business, I, I'm curious, where are you speaking and what is the impact that that's having? So one of the things that I always said was when this was over, I want to help others. I want to be an advocate for women, for police officers in the same situation, because nobody, there wasn't anybody there for me. And I think, just having somebody to say it's okay, it's okay to stand up and say this is not right and you want things to change makes a lot of difference. And the police, you are institutionalized. I see it like a domestic abuse situation. You know, you are so controlled. It's a disciplined environment, police, and you are controlled. And there are many officers of rank that misuse and abuse their power and authority in different ways, which is just like a can of worms. There is just so many different scenarios and situations, but it's an environment that's nurtured this sort of behavior, unfortunately. And rewards it. And rewarded, exactly. So nobody was actually coming in to say, actually, you can stand up because of the fear. The fear is so great of standing up or doing something about it You've got yourself in a situation. Some people get themselves in a situation where they're reliant on the money that comes in. I was one of them, you know, and that's what made it so difficult. I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have the insurances in place that could have protected me and paid for this employment. I thought I did with the police federation, but they abandoned me when I needed them most as well. And that's a whole other story. But the main fact is I wasn't prepared. And when you're in an, an, an institution like that, it's a family as well. You know, you don't believe for one minute like me. I had utter faith and trust in this organisation and the people I worked with. I never knew this was going to happen. So speaking out and standing up and as loud as I can to as many people as I can to share my experience, you know, if that gives them the, the strength to do something for themselves or for others, then brilliant. But I think... Change is coming and it's not okay to stand on the sidelines and not do anything about it. Now, a question that I, I often ask in, in this season, because it's about um, huge transitions that women have gone through is knowing what you know now, what do you wish you had known at the outset of all of this? And that's what also I, I would think that a lot of other women in your position or similar situations should know. So there's about three things and I hope I don't forget them here because I'm not, my memory really isn't that great sometimes. Um, Have a plan B financially. Make sure you have 
you don't rely on just one organisation for the insurance. So make sure you have home insurance that covers employment, basically, and make sure you've got savings. Make sure you've got a plan B that can you can look after yourself for, say, three months at least, just in case something happens, no matter what it is. The people round about you are of huge importance. So there was a lot of um, negativity around me. There was a lot of people giving me advice. But question, who benefits from their advice? Is it you or is it them? And if they are not helping you, you need to get rid of them. You need to create space between you and them, whether it's space or just separation entirely. That needs to happen. Seek out people that will support and love you. Keep them close and and they will look after you. Go with your gut. That's the other thing. See, throughout this, when I haven't listened to my gut, things have went wrong. And when I have, I've kept going, like the NDAs, I knew not to sign them. I nearly signed it, and it, it took me down a bad path. And um, my gut had said, no, don't sign it, but it was just out of desperation. So I got back on track again. But your gut is very important. So influence, having a plan B, and... Um, Trust yourself. Go with your gut. Put everything in writing. Put everything Ooh. in writing. That is really important because that is what has that a lot of the evidence that I found was through subject. I don't know if this is if you have the same, but we have subject access requests and freedom of information mm-hmm. where we can apply to an organization for any information they hold and by law they've got to give you. Now, Police Scotland, it took about four or five times for them to send information and they've still got a lot that they haven't shared. But by law, they should be sharing all the information. Organisations in the UK certainly should be sharing that information. Um, And, yeah, so everything in writing. If you speak to somebody verbally, get them to put it in writing. If if you don't think they'll put it in writing, just say, can you put it in writing first and we'll have a discussion afterwards. You know, it's it's vitally important going forward. Call call people out. They're not nice. That's fabulous information. But unfortunately... Especially when you've been told by the institution that you are a member of that we'll take care of you. We've got your back. Yeah. Yeah, you you don't think that you need to be protecting yourself against this group that you're these part are things, of. These are things that I've learned as I've as I've went yeah. along the road. Nobody was there to tell me these. But looking yeah. back, that's what I would do. What are you doing now? That is totally a, de- a departure we can see over your shoulder there. Uh, a poster that that's your current career what yeah. are you now doing and how did you get on that path so it's it's quite a, a weird way how I got onto it but I, I sell houses now I'm an estate agent so um I've always had a huge interest in property always 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 but the circumstances just were never right so well <laughs> you know why why not 70,000 pound of debt I've um why not start my own business you know I, I see at this point it was like I needed something to take my mind off what had been happening. And I'd went and I'd went to university. So for the year before, so from 2020 to 21, I went and done a course, a postgraduate diploma in career guidance, coaching and development. The idea was that I would be a career guidance practitioner. But what I really did was it was like a year of career counselling. So during that period, I found out that I wanted to be an estate agent. So... I graduated, I um, passed it, which I'm extremely proud of as well because I've never been to university. That was the first time I'd been. 
and yeah, and I started my business in May of 2021 this year. If, if at all, you're now an independent business owner. How does the yeah. experience that you had these this the whole the whole end of your former incarnation as Rona Malone, police officer, and everything you went through? How does that inform how you show up now in your business and how you interact with people? <laughs> so, see the horrendous treatment that I experienced from all the people that are supposed to look after you. I never want him to experience that, ever. So my business is very much built on doing the right thing, about supporting people, being there 100%, listening, understanding, problem solving, finding outcomes. You know, all the things I did as a police officer for other people, I still do, but in the property market. But the reason I'm so driven, and I mean, I could never have went and worked with anybody again. And the simple reason is I would never put myself in that situation again, never, because I was so ill. I mean, I was in the darkest of places and I never went to experience that again. So I'm taking control of my life. But the other thing is I also want other people to see that that bad experience doesn't define you, doesn't mean that you have to be miserable and a victim for the rest of your life. If anything, if you are, they win. Yes. They win 100%. And, you know, I love myself too much to not succeed and achieve in something else. They are missing out on something great. That's how I see it. And every woman should see that because they're wonderful people, so creative, so independent, and we have relied on conditioning as since we were young to believe we were second best, we weren't equal. You know, maybe maybe not everybody. So I can't. I'm not speaking for MD. I'm just speaking from my own experiences. Mm -hmm. It's important to believe in yourself, to find that confidence and love, and take that on and help others in whatever you choose to do. And you're doing that through your new business as an estate agent, Barona. I think you're also very powerfully doing that through public speaking about yeah. the situation. Yeah. So I've just started doing that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I hope you continue doing it because your your story is, is very important, is very impactful, and it's, it, it's extremely moving. It is, it is, and um, I, again, if I didn't do something with this, it would have been wasted, and it would have just, you know, what would have been the point? But I'm trying to turn it into something good. You know, it was a horrible situation. It was yep. a horrible experience and there's horrible people out there. Yep. But you can turn that around and you can learn from that and you can help change. Yep. Help and influence progress and change in organisations like that. Because at the end of the day, they're our police force. They, you know, it, it's, it's my duty still. I'm not a police officer anymore, but it's still my duty because that'll never leave me to make sure that people are safe. If I didn't challenge Police Scotland, if I didn't take it to that to that extreme of going to court, they would have just got away with it. And mm -hmm. more and more women would have been affected. And that's not okay. And nothing changes if nothing changes. Nothing changes. And Rona, what you did, the battle that you put in and the impact that it had on you is something that we all owe you a debt of gratitude for. I, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see that. 
it was just a it just it was a natural thing for me to do and I love people saying that to me but I really need them to put that into the energy and supporting other women who are going through this just now thank you so much for being with me today and talking to me about this this is such a moving story but it's also such an important story and I'm I'm really really grateful that you shared that with me today thank you thank you for asking thank you September this amazing conversation is one woman's efforts to use podcast guest appearances to get her very important message out to the world whether it's to build her business her audience her credibility or even rebuild her life these women know that co-creating amazing interview recordings on other people's podcasts that will be promoted and broadcast from all of the major podcast platforms for years to come is a smart way to be building their brand and getting their message out. Whether it's to grow your speaking career, to get more widely known, or to better position yourself as the authority you really are, strategic podcast guesting is a savvy move. We can help you figure out your best strategy and get you rapidly and effectively launched, leveraging this powerful medium. Contact us at September at OfCoursePro.com or book a complimentary consultation call. The links are in the notes of this podcast. Join the ranks of people making podcast guesting really work for them. Let's get you started. She's over.